Welcome to the Saints and Scholars podcast. Today we are continuing an interview with Dr. Michael Hecken. Dr. Michael Hecken is the Professor of Church History and Biblical Spirituality at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and also the Director of the Andrew Fuller Centre for Baptist Studies. He, as we mentioned last time, continues to lecture in Canada and is also involved in the Munster Bible College here on the island of Ireland. He's married to Alison and they have two grown children, Victoria and Nigel. Last uh, episode we uh, had Dr Hicken tell us a little bit about the strength of his connection to Ireland. He himself, an Irish citizen, uh, with a mother who grew up in the island, and many, many holidays that he came and spent here on the island. After becoming a Christian, his interest in the island shifted somewhat, so that he became particularly concerned with the work of the Irish Baptists, but also concerned uh, with the need for the gospel to move forward on the island. Dr. Hecken is a, a specialist in patristics. He, he knows an awful lot about those early Christians. And so he has taken a particular interest in the life of St. Patrick. And last time, talked to us a little bit about the man behind the myth. However, this time, we're looking forward to maybe unpacking a little bit about the theology that Patrick held to. Maybe we could talk a little bit about some of his theology. You you mentioned uh, the clover earlier, that, that, that according to myth he used to teach Trinity. Is it right to associate Patrick with Trinity? And if so, in what way did that very real doctrine influence and drive the man? Yes, I mean, one of the uh, big issues of the 4th century was the doctrine of the Trinity. It had been um, an issue... Uh, since around the year 318, when an Egyptian uh, elder named um, uh, Arius had denied the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the fourth century was consumed with theological argument and debate about the doctrine of the Trinity. Finally, at the Council of Constantinople in 381, um, Constantinople being um, Istanbul today, um, the the um, uh, Trinity had been the doctrine of the Trinity had been declared as you know uh, the essential uh, for uh, Christian fellowship and Christian proclamation. The only the only text that we know that Patrick read besides the Bible, and he knows the Bible incredibly well, is uh, the creed that was published at Constantinople. He reproduces, it's not exactly the same, but he reproduces a, a creed uh, that uh, is similar to the Nicene Creed, which is what was published at uh, uh, Constantinople, or a revision of it. And um, on uh, every page, you see this deep commitment to the Trinity that the, the God whom we worship and proclaim is three uh, persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are indivisibly one, yet really three. Um, we are not tritheists, we are monotheists. There is one true and living God, yet he has revealed himself in three blessed persons. And um, <clears throat> this uh, concept of the Trinity undergirds his understanding of mission. It's because of his faith in the Trinity, he says, that he is 
led to mission. And the Celtic church has a deep interest following Patrick in the doctrine of the Trinity. And you see this in a number of writings. Um, Columba, um, sorry, Columbanus, who was a Irish missionary to what is now France, Switzerland, Northern Italy. Um, he has a number of writings in which you can see the kind of the fingerprint of Patrick, um, his fascination with the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, his proclamation of the true and living God being revealed in Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, so that that's something that legend then does have a an element of fact. Um, there is no evidence in either the confession or the soldiers of letter to the soldiers of Caroticus that he he used a three leaf clover to preach the Trinity, but uh, the it, it, that that little kind of story does bear the memory that uh, Patrick was very taken up with this doctrine and it was central to his teaching. We sometimes, evangelicals today, we run into this mistake of thinking that before the Reformation, the church never really gave much attention to the Bible. It was there, it was a reference, but it wasn't foundational to what they did. Now, I know that there's a lot wrong with, with that, but in particular, you mentioned how Bible-dependent Patrick was. Can you talk a little bit to correct that misconception about how important the Bible was to a man like Patrick? Yes, I mean, I mean, the th as I said, the thing that uh, uh, is impressed upon you as you go through the confession is here is a man who knows his Bible tremendously well. Um, obvious texts, for instance, are used to support his missionary in engagement, passages like Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Mark 16, um, etc. But there are also passages drawn from more obscure books. Um, uh, Hosea, for example, he's got a verse from Hosea that he uses. And so he, he knows the scriptures. Um, there are explicit citations on every page, as well as allusions and um, uh, paraphrases of Bible verses. And um, it's very evident that the Christian culture out of which he comes, um, both the, what he would have had before he was uh, converted, and then uh, after he goes back to Britannia, and he's back for about close to 20 years, that it was a, uh, a Bible-based culture. And in fact, this is true of the church, probably up to around five, 600, uh, much later than we, we tend to think. Um, the Bible is central. Um, and in the Celtic church, it's, it's longer than that. You have, you know, the loving work that went into a book like the Book of Kells that is on display in Trinity College Library in Dublin or um, the Lindisfarne Gospels, which was, again, it's an Irish text um, drawn up on Lindisfarne, which is a small island off the northeastern coast of England, but it was an Irish Celtic church settlement. Um, it had come from Iona, which is off the southern, uh, southeastern, southwestern uh, coast near uh, Oban and Mull of, of Scotland. 
And these were, were Celtic settlements, Celtic church settlements. And part of what they did was these absolutely tremendous copies of the scriptures. Uh, tremendous in terms of the, the skill of the copyist and the decoration um, um, that went into them. And you can see very clearly that there is a love for the word of God in, in, these, in this church. But that would have been not only a love for the, the physical word of God, the, the physical text, but uh, definitely in Patrick's day and before, there is this very, very clear biblical focus. Um, they don't always get the interpretation right. I mean, that's, that's a given. But uh, they are seeking to be Bible-based um, in a way that the medieval church was not. One of the other things that in particular your book highlights about Patrick was his uh, view of the Holy Spirit and how that drove so much of his mission. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? What was it about Patrick's view of the Holy Spirit that uh, propelled him in the work that he did? Yeah, I think on two areas. One is just the way in which the Holy Spirit for Patrick would bring to mind scriptures, would encourage him, would comfort him. Um, he talks about during his time of, of in, uh, enslavement um, <clears throat> that the Holy Spirit in, in him was fervent, enabled him despite the just the trauma and the horror of his circumstances uh, to engage in prayer. Um, he talks about the Spirit moving him to being a, a prayer-dependent uh, Christian or person. And the other area is the... Uh, and this is an area that we we have tended as evangelicals in the West to be um, a bit suspicious about, maybe. Is, I mean, I'm not sure if that's the right word. He records about uh, four or five dreams that he had. Um, his call to go back to Ireland is rooted, for example, um, primarily in his reading of the Holy Scriptures and the mission that is laid out there. But he also has a dream. You know, he has this dream where an Irishman comes and says, will you not walk among us again? Um, and uh, when he escapes, he has a dream. Um, he senses the Holy Spirit telling him there is a boat waiting for him and he needs to get up and leave. And he does. And he, he records uh, three or four of these. And um, uh, anybody who's worked today among Muslims will get a, a sense of familiarity because um, one of the ways in which God has worked among Muslims in terms of leading them to Christ is you hear about them having a dream that will you know, direct them where they, you know, you need to listen to Christians or you need to find a Bible. I know of a situation where uh, a couple were, were told, um, both of them had a dream in which they were told they need to get a Bible to find the way of salvation. Uh, the dream didn't convert them, but directed them. And there is a similarity to, to, to Patrick in this regard. Um, and uh, so there is this, this activity of the Holy Spirit in his life. And I guess one of the big questions that we have which is a question that has occupied evangelicals and before us, you know, the Puritans and the reformers 
is does the Holy Spirit speak to us uh, uh, only when the scriptures are being read or preached? Or can he speak to us uh, independently of the scriptures, but never in contradiction to the word of God? So, in other words, uh, uh, do we expect to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit only when I'm reading the word of God or meditating on the word of God or uh, hearing it preached? Or could I, for example, be walking down a road and the spirit impress upon me something on my heart and mind? And is that uh, legitimate? And so that the, the Patrick's experience raises that large question, which the Puritans also wrestled with. And by and large, the Puritans argued word and spirit the word of God and the Holy Spirit have to be kept firmly together. But there are times when you, you might be you know, walking down a road and suddenly you have a sense of something, which is not never in contradiction to the word, but is the spirit speaking to you. Um, and in this, the, the, interestingly enough, the, the, the Puritans differed from say the Lutherans. For Luther, the spirit never spoke to a person if the word of God was not being actively read or preached. Uh, the Puritans following John Calvin were willing to, to, to accommodate sometimes extraordinary experiences. Uh, John Bunyan, for example, has a number of these. Uh, John Flavel, um, Thomas Goodwin. Um, these are not the meat and substance of their lives, but they recognize sometimes God can do extraordinary things. Uh, through the Holy Spirit. And so my, my understanding of Patrick, these sort of dreams that he has is more as along the lines of that tradition that you find in uh, the Puritan tradition, which is the, the openness to the possibility that sometimes God can speak to us um, when the word of God is not actively being preached, etc. Et but never, ever in contradiction. And the norm is obviously the scriptures and it was for patrick for, for evangelicals looking back at a man like patrick there's he's strange to read because there's so much that just resonates uh, he seems like a friend in your church today and yet there's other little aspects that you know they're they're just they are just so different he, as monasticism for example how you especially as one who teaches church history regularly how do you encourage modern evangelicals to look and to relate to a man like Patrick? What do we do with with them where there's so much similarity and yet these some areas that we just don't know quite what to do with? How, how do we relate to a man like that? Yeah, monasticism is obviously an issue, I think, uh, for us um, and uh, not wrongly so. Um, the encouragement of the idea that there that a celibate um, lifestyle um, lived in a, an enclosure um, with a group of, of men or on the other hand, a group of women um, is a higher calling than a housewife or a bus driver or a lawyer or a banker, etc., um, is a deep problem. And the Reformation addresses that um, all Christians are priests unto God. Um, it's a very big part of Luther's message, the priesthood of all believers. 
and the rejection of there being a type of lifestyle that is holier than others. Uh, ministry is, is a, a calling, vocational ministry is a calling. It doesn't make you any more holy than uh, a person who is not called to be a preacher of the gospel, etc. Um, but it, uh, in Patrick's day, monasticism um, is quite different in one sense. Uh, monasticism was a response to the union of church and state that had taken place in the fourth century. By, by the 380s, uh, Christianity was the only legal religion in the Roman Empire. And other religions um, were now being physically um, uh, dragooned into either conformity or being rubbed out. Um, uh, temples were being destroyed or converted, pagan temples, that is, etc. And the 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 va a vast majority of people were embracing Christianity, but with no heartfelt religion, uh, no real work of conversion. But because this was now the the ideology of the hour, they wanted to live in comfort, maybe get ahead in culture and society. So you become a Christian, and that is a obviously from the point of view of New Testament Christianity, uh, just a fundamental aberration. And it really sets the stage for the departure from the gospel of large sectors of medieval Christianity. Um, and monasticism is a protest movement. It's a reminder that to be a Christian costs us. And um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German uh, Christian who was killed um, at the end of the Second World War, uh, argued at one point that monasticism is a reminder that grace the grace of God is not cheap. There is a cost. We must take up our cross and follow Christ. And um, and I, I basically uh, I basically understand monasticism that way. And so Patrick's promotion of monasticism comes out of the the world in which he had grown up in, in which there is this emphasis that if you really want to follow Christ fully, you need to make that a commitment that engages. Um, your um, possessions. So monks, you know, sim lived in simplicity. Um, the question of authority. Uh, you live under the authority of an of an abbot um, or an abbess, a woman, um, if you're a woman, and then uh, that affects your sexuality. That you live a celibate lifestyle. I think in the early years there is no um, there is no attempt to. Uh, again, this differs. There are some that is not true of, but a number of the early monastic authors are not trying to say this is the only way to serve God. This is a holy way to serve God. Um, they are trying to retain the 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 holiness of the church, uh, the distinctiveness of the church. That church and culture cannot be merged. Um, but I think in time, it becomes this idea that um, uh, if you really want to serve God, you become a monk or a nun. And um, there are definitely um, are ascetic elements in monasticism that are problematic from the point of view of the gospel. And um, I think, again, there we have to see Patrick as a man of his time. It's not a major thing. There's no indication that Patrick himself lived a monastic lifestyle. 
Um, he doesn't talk about a wife, so there's no indication he was married, but there's no indication that he himself lived a monastic lifestyle. But he does talk about um, young uh, Irish women uh, devoting themselves to a celibate lifestyle, uh, what we would later call nuns. The word doesn't exist in that period. Um, and uh, given, I think, the experience of the church in the late medieval period and then all the way down to the modern day, I mean, Ireland has a real, there's a real, there's been a real, there have been real problems in that whole world. Um, I mean, as I said, I grew up in a, in a home that was an Irish Catholic home with a granny praying for, uh, you know, her grandchildren to become either uh, priests or nuns. Um, my mom uh, reacted deeply against the nuns who taught her. Um, she was very gifted in uh, Gaelic and Irish, um, but uh, never taught us any of it because just the way it was taught to her by the nuns, it was drilled into her. And she had some very, very, really nasty individuals who supposedly were holy people. And the reality is they were just very frustrated, angry women and bitter. Um, and so the experience of, of this whole world that Patrick promotes to a degree, not, it's not the main agenda, but it's there to a degree, you know, 1600 years on is a, has been a deep problem in the Irish culture. Um, here in Canada, Quebec, the, the massive turning away from Roman Catholicism in Quebec is tied again to the corruption of the church, the Catholic church. And um, uh, the link to the, 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 these, these the, the monks and nuns who are anything but Christian. Um, so the, the danger is that we interpret Patrick's world from the point of view of ours, and it's a very different world. And monasticism has emerged. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a renewal movement. It's a protest movement. It's not this massive, powerful institution that it had become by the time of the Reformation, for example, or continued to be in, in Ireland. Um, I've, I watch a fair amount of Irish television and uh, am very aware from some of the, the, you know, the programs of how devastating uh, this has been for the, for the psychological health of Irish men and women in the Republic, for example. I want to express our thanks to Dr. Hecken for sharing with us so clearly today and taking us through some of those interesting aspects of this uh, ancient man's wonderful, timeless theology. Thank you, Dr. Hecken, for your time. If anybody is interested, in the description there is a link again, as we had last week, to uh, the confession that Patrick wrote. And you can go and read in his own words a little bit of how he thought about the Almighty and that word-centeredness that marks Patrick's writings. Uh, next week we will have Dr. Hecken back for one more time to talk a little bit about the legacy that Patrick left here on the island.